The struggle with sin is an issue that many believers face, sometimes leading to people questioning their salvation. Even for me personally, I've had those kind of struggles many years ago, especially in my early Christian life. How could I really be born again and yet sin against God? Maybe I was saved, but yet lost my salvation. Not knowing the word as well, that kind of thought came to my mind. No different today. Maybe my sins had revealed that I actually had never been born again. You see, those kind of struggles can put us in a miserable condition. It has for many. I've talked to many people that struggled in those ways. That as a result of failures in their own life, they lacked assurance of salvation. These are common. If you've struggled or are struggling with those kind of things today, you're not alone. Many believers struggle. The Puritans struggled with those very same questions. When we were in the book of Hebrews, we saw that sin in the life of a professing believer can actually be an evidence that one is not a true believer. Remember that text? That text that's bothersome to many people. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. But it says if we go on, it's the practice. It's the, the Greek present tense. It means habitual, continual sin. It's to hear the gospel, to be faced to face with the gospel and go on living as if the gospel's not real. That's the idea here. It's not talking about sinless perfection. If we had to be perfect from the moment that we're saved until we die to get to heaven, there's not one person that would make it to heaven. None of us. So we're not talking about sinless perfection. No one is without sin. Even the Apostle Paul spoke of that struggle with sin in the Christian life. Actually, the Apostle John says this, if we say we have no sin, he's talking to believers, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Believers are those who admit that we're born in sin, that we're not sinless. We are those who are trusting in what Christ has done for us. We're trusting in his mercy. So to be born again is to admit we have a sin problem. Confess it, be honest about it, and look to him. It goes on to write, John goes on to write, if we confess our sin, our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So again, we're those who confess our sin, and we look to Christ. Confession here is also another text that's the present tense, so that continuation. We have to continually confess. It's a habit of our life. It should be a habit of our lives as believers. Because face it, the more you grow, the more you know the word, the more Maybe sins you didn't even recognize 
in your early Christian life become more and more evident. And that's that growing process. That's that practical sanctification that needs to take place. So back in Hebrews, if a person continues in willful sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, ultimately it's talking about rejecting the atoning work of Christ. It's the evidence of an unrepentant heart. It's to hear the gospel and continue in the same state without the gospel having that saving work in the person's heart. A true believer is a saved sinner, no longer in bondage to sin, not in the same sense as we were before we were born again. But to be quite honest, we're saints who sometimes sin. We should be quick to confess it when we do. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we see this struggle of sin in the next number of verses where we left off verse 15 last week. These are God's chosen people, the people that God had called out of the world, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had called out of the world to make a name for himself, as we saw last week. And so at this particular time in history, they have come back, returned from exile in Persia. They're back in the land. The walls are rebuilt. Nehemiah had led the people to rebuild the walls, and they are in that fall month of Tishrei. They had celebrated the Feast of Trumpets. They had celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. And the children of Israel had repented of their sins. They had repented of the sins of their forefathers, wearing sackcloth, evidencing that repentance, wearing sackcloth and throwing dust on their heads. On the 24th day of Tishrei, they separated themselves. This was a Monday, would have been a Monday, two days after the Sabbath. They separated themselves from foreigners. They read the law for the first quarter of the daylight hours. And they confessed their sins and worshiped God for the second quarter. And then in verses 5 through 15, as we saw last week, they began to look at the history. The Levites led them in a prayer recounting the history of Israel. And those first number of verses recount the amazing work of God in the history of the nation of Israel. God's people, the people that God had called out of the world. And so in this prayer, the Levites recount that history. Verse 10 reveals again the purpose of God's work in redemption of the nation of Israel. It's to make a name for himself. And that's what history is all about. That's what the word of God is all about. It's about his name. It's about Yahweh or Yahweh, the eternal self-existing, independent God, the one that is truly God, king above all kings, Lord above all lords. And in these verses, we saw that the Levites exalt Yahweh, the Lord. They exalt him as the almighty creator of all things. 
as the covenant-keeping God who chose Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees, as the redeeming God who delivered Israel out of Egypt, making a name for himself, as a holy God who gave Israel his laws on Mount Sinai, and as a shepherding God who led and provided for Israel in the wilderness. He's all those things, and it's demonstrated through history. He's almighty creator. He's covenant keeping. He always keeps his promises. He's redeeming. He's holy. And he's a shepherding God. Yet in spite of God's work in history, in spite of God's faithfulness to his people, in verses 16 through 31, Israel fails. They fail God over and over again. In these next 16 verses, there are six expressions of Israel's rebellion against the God that had done all that for them. The God that had been faithful to them in spite of themselves. But there's also six responses of God to Israel. They rebel, God responds. They rebel, God responds. Six times. This period in verses 16 through 31 covers a thousand years of earth history. The history of Israel in which Israel over and over again acted wickedly. Six times they acted presumptuously. Six times they rebelled against a holy, faithful God. Six times they respond in rebellion. Six times God responds to them, but not in the way that you would expect. Six times God responds in mercy. Mercy. God did not give them what they deserved. So as the Levites continue to recount Israel's history, Notice the first rebellion. Verse 16 and 17a. It reads, but they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds, which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. So here the children of Judah took responsibility for the sins of their fathers. And they say that they acted arrogantly. The word means to boil up, to seethe, to act presumptuously. And they also say in verse 16 that they became stubborn. It literally means stiffen their necks. It means to be difficult. It's like to set yourself in one direction and not let anything turn you away. They stiffened their necks. They were stubborn. They would not listen to God or listen to his law. And we remember what happened in the wilderness. That's the context of these two verses. God met the needs of the children of Israel. He provided manna. He provided 
water to drink. It met their needs. He was gracious to them, but they complained. They complained against God and against Moses. They became tired of the manna. And they started to say, we were better off in Egypt. Let's go back. And it says in verse 17, they became stubborn or stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. It's referring back to Numbers chapter 14, verse 4, which it doesn't go into detail, but it says, so they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. That's the level of the rebellion against God. God had delivered them through the Red Sea. Miraculous opening the Red Sea that they would cross through. Not in mud, not in difficulty, but on dry land. And then God protected them by destroying their enemies behind them. Once they got to the other side, God had given them the law. Now they're in the wilderness heading to the promised land, 40 years there because of their sin, but God still met their need. He was still gracious to them. And they were not happy. They complained, murmured against God and against Moses. They were in rebellion against him. Complete rebellion. In rebellion against the God that had led them out of Egypt, who had set them free from bondage and slavery, and they sought to return to the land of bondage. They sought to return to Egypt. So what was God's response? It was mercy. Chapter 9, verse 17b. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Would God have been just in forsaking them in the desert, in the wilderness? He certainly would have. But he did not. This verse reveals God's merciful character. Yes, God would have been just in abandoning them or destroying them. But we must also remember God had made an unconditional covenant in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. An unconditional covenant with Israel. And he would not abandon his covenant because he's faithful. He always keeps his word. He is a righteous God. He did not forsake Israel. That's mercy. So what's the response of Israel next? Verse 18. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, it's more than just making an idol, and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And they committed great blasphemies. Notice here, Israel willfully broke the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make an idol or graven image. 
and gathering up that gold. That's premeditation. It wasn't spare. The, I mean, they sinned against God. They broke the first two commandments. And then they gave this idol. A piece of carved gold. Credit for bringing them up out of Egypt. This was blasphemous as the text says. Now it's time for God to destroy them. But he does not. Verse 19 through 25. And just listen as I read through. You in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Folks, on indeed, 40 years you have provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. They didn't do without. Their clothes did not wear out, neither did their feet swell. You also gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them as a boundary, and they took possession of the land of Sinon and the king of Heshbon. And you made their sons numerous stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land which you had told your fathers to enter and possess. Verse 24, so the sons entered and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, the wicked Canaanites. And you gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing. Hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and revealed, or excuse me, and reveled in your great goodness. Israel sinned. They rebelled against God, yet God is faithful to them. Notice how verse 19 begins. You in your great compassion. That's the word mercy. For God does give them what they really deserve. We know what they deserve. We know what we deserve. But God is a merciful God. You in your great compassion, in your mercy, did not forsake them in the wilderness. We're talking about a merciful, loving creator, a covenant-keeping God. So in spite of Israel's rebellion, according to these verses, God led them in the wilderness. He provided for them in the wilderness. He gave them the promised land. He blessed their posterity, giving them descendants like the stars of heaven. He subdued Israel's enemies. He blessed them with abundance. And they reveled in God's great goodness.
chapter 9, verse 26, we see more rebellion by the nation of Israel. Verse 26, but they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their necks. We don't want nothing to do with this law, this holy standard of God. And killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you and they committed great blasphemies. So they cast or threw the law behind their necks. They killed the prophets who were admonishing the prophets that God had sent to get their attention and call them to repentance. We know that many prophets were slain by Jezebel with Ahab's sanction, found in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 4. Zechariah was put to death by Joash, 2 Chronicles 24, 22. And according to Jewish tradition, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel were all murdered. When Jesus stood at the near the end of his life, and he looked out over the city of Jerusalem. This is what he said. Old Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. God in his mercy had sent prophet after prophet to warn them, and they put them to death. Rebellion against God, against Yahweh. Verse 27a, Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. I know what you're thinking. That doesn't sound very much like mercy, does it? But it was. God loves his elect. He's always faithful to his elect. He chastens those whom he loves. He knows exactly how to get our attention. Like it or not, he's been called the hound of heaven, this God that we serve. Because those he seeks, he finds. It's true of God's work in salvation. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. But it's also true of God seeking a wayward child. Like a shepherd that lovingly goes after that lost sheep. I would say he is the hound of heaven. And praise be to his name. But as we continue in verse 27, I think you'll see why we call this mercy. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, there's that word mercy again, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. See, this was God's mercy. God was at work to accomplish his purposes. God used Israel's oppressors to get their attention. In their distress, they cried out to him. They heard their cry. 
And in his compassion, he delivered them once again. Now it's time for Israel to listen to God. To submit to his laws, to love him and honor him. But verse 28a, notice the fourth rebellion. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Maybe now it's time to destroy them. Without jumping ahead, can I suggest that we're just like them? It's true. Once again, God delivers them. He gives rest from their oppressors. They did evil once again. Surely this time God would destroy them, but he doesn't, does not. Verse 28b and 29a. Therefore you abandoned them to the hands of their enemies. It happens again so that they ruled over them. And when they cried again to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. God abandons them to their enemies because he's a chastening God once again. That they would cry out to him. And so, let me ask this. You begin to see a pattern here? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Verse 29b. Yet, <laughs> they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commands, but sinned against your ordinances by which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. Israel turns again against the Lord. Surely now it's time for total destruction, but no. We see God's mercy. Verse 30a. However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets. God continued to work. He continued to be long-suffering with them. Verse 30b, yet they would not give ear. Rebellion again. It's just a continuation. It's a cycle. And there's obviously more than six occurrences. Some of these are referencing periods of time in which there were multiple rebellions against God. It was almost a continual thing. Yet they would not give ear. They wouldn't listen. They were turning away. They were stiff-necked. And they would not listen to God. After all that God had done in their history with their people, they did not want to hear from Him. Verse 30, C, and verse 31. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. This is Yahweh. This is the God that has chosen to call a people out for His name. Today, we are those people. He did not make an end of them. 
Now, jumping ahead into next week's text, look at verse 33. However, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. God was faithful. He kept the covenant he made with them. The Levites here are taking responsibility. The people are taking responsibility for their own sins and the sins of their fathers. We're talking about a thousand years of Israel's history. We see over and over Israel rebelling. And yet God, in one form or fashion, shows mercy. Rebellion, mercy. Rebellion, mercy. Rebellion, mercy. Over and over again. It's an endless cycle. God is faithful in spite of Israel's rebellious hearts. I don't know if you've noticed it, but there's a theological problem that comes up when we look at this. How in the world could a holy God overlook sin? He did not give them what they deserved. He did not execute judgment upon them. Well, first, think about this. Understand this. God's righteousness is not based on Old Covenant law. The Old Covenant, the law, is based on God's righteousness. God does not have some external standard that he goes by. God is the standard. He is righteous. He's holy. He's just. And he never overlooks sin. Because he's a just God. He doesn't throw out this for the sake of being compassionate. He's both, both merciful and just. All at the same time. All throughout eternity. It never changes. So what's the solution? By God's grace, the Apostle Paul gave us the solution. In Romans chapter 3. I love this. Talking about Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is a satisfying sacrifice through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. And look at this. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. He didn't hold them accountable for their sins. He passed over them. Verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God withheld his judgment. But his mercy was based upon Jesus Christ. He withheld his judgment so that in the fullness of time, he might demonstrate his righteousness. That's exactly what God was doing. See, it was all based upon Christ, the Messiah. Why was he able to withhold his justice for over a thousand years? Because in Christ. But what about this endless cycle? Even after a thousand years, as we will see in the next few verses, beginning in chapter 10, 
You know what they say again? <laughs> now we'll keep your commandments. You know, looking back and viewing the history of their forefathers and seeing sin after sin, rebellion after rebellion. Now we'll do it. But they didn't. They never did. Matter of fact, they couldn't. You cannot obey God's law and live up to his standard. We all fall short. A couple points here. I don't think there's any doubt that many of these Jewish people were sincere. I really think they thought, yeah, now we'll do it. We can do it now. Now we understand. But they couldn't. Each time they repented, they probably thought, yep, we could do it. But God had already told them the answer to this cycle, this sin problem that continually manifests itself in the lives of every person born in sin. The answer was coming, and it's found in Jeremiah chapter 31. I don't mean to harp on this. But we must grasp what God did in Christ. The fulfillment of the prophecy. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the, co to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. He's talking about that same history. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity, their sin, and, I, and their sin I will remember no more. At least in part, the answer is found in the new covenant. We are recipients. We live in the new covenant. First Sunday of every month, raise that cup. This is the new covenant in my blood. God has written his laws on our hearts. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant through the shedding of his blood. He gave his life by the shedding of blood that we could know God, that we could know him intimately. They shall know God. They will be my people. When we read about this cycle that Israel experienced of rebellion and God showing mercy. Do you relate this morning? I do. Ever struggle with sin as a believer and wish that, wish with all your heart that you could have total victory and never sin again? Ever tried and failed? Tried and failed and tried and failed. You're in good company. It's all of us. Understand that God's law was never given 
to make Israel holy before God. This applies to us. Actually, in Israel's history, as they experience failure after failure, the law that God had given them, that old covenant, was doing exactly what God intended for it to do. The law was not a failure. It was exactly what God intended to give them, and it was doing exactly what God intended for it to do. See, the law is God's teacher to teach us that God is holy and we are not. The law is God's teacher to show us that even if we had a thousand years, we would never be good enough to please God. And the law is God's teacher to point us to the Messiah. I need Jesus and you do too. Oh, it's by his grace that we are forgiven in Christ. It's by his grace that we're declared righteous. God has made me holy in the beloved. I don't always act like it, but I have positional sanctification in Christ. Not because of me, but because of him. And so maybe you're thinking, well, wait a minute. I may no longer be in bondage to sin. I may be positionally holy before God, but I still struggle. I still relate to Israel's history. You see, unbelievers sin and basically they don't care. They're not in this struggle that we're in. As believers, we have new hearts in Christ. But we have bodies that are still prone to sin. We all know the struggle that I'm referring to this morning. Even the apostle knew it. Listen to his words in Romans chapter 7. I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do it. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, he had the same struggle. If a person has to be sinless in their walk to enter heaven, there's not a person that's going to make it. But yet we're not those who continual, continually practice willful sin. First John 3 eight says the one who practices sin is of the devil. That's not what we're talking about. Anyone that can go on and on and on in the lifestyle of sin and don't care and are not convicted. And the shepherd doesn't come after the sheep. There's something wrong. Because those who are in Christ have new desires. But we do still have the old nature. And we can sin. Every one of us knows about this battle. 
we're all in this battle. Paul writes, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body or the body of this death? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the answer. Look to him. We all struggle. As believers, there are struggles that go on. But it's not forever. There's coming a day that even the very presence of sin in us will be taken away. John writes about it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are not children of God. We now, excuse me. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's coming a day of the redemption of even our bodies, our sin-prone bodies, and that battle will be gone. And John goes on to say in the very next verse, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So as we look ahead to what God will do in the completion of our salvation, and we know that sin will be taken away, even that faith, knowing, trusting what God will one day do, and it will be dealt with once and for all, is a purifying force in our lives. You know the battle that I'm talking about. Do not be dismayed. If you're really in this battle, you have really been born again and you're in this battle. Look to Christ. I can so identify with the nation of it. Even though I'm in the new covenant and I have the blessings of the new covenant. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's him. Let's pray.